You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, upc.org. As Becky read out of Psalm 119, it brought me to a certain place. Because that passage uh, holds a certain place in the faith journey of my own life. I grew up in a Christian family and in a Mennonite community up in Whatcom County and learned all of the ways of life that God invites us into. Uh, wonderful teaching, uh, a genuine expression of community that comes out of a centering on Jesus. As I grew, you come to a point in your life when you are given the choice. Do I continue in this way of life or do I choose a different way? And around 17 years old, I chose a different way. In fact, I was struggling with questions as I'd seen some things fall apart in my life. And the very question of, is God real? And does the love of God mean anything to me? And so at that point, I headed out and tried to make it on my own. And I didn't make it very far. (laughs) And God continued to pursue my heart, continued to reveal and make known the love that was for me. Not the distant love, not the concept of love, but the reality that I was known and invited into knowing the Almighty God, my Creator, my Father. As I sat in an apartment in Bellingham, Washington, struggling to make sense and meaning out of that, I came upon Psalm 119, 25 to 32. And it was as if the psalmist was, was reading my thoughts and, and, good reminder. <laughs> it was as if the psalmist was reading my thoughts and, and, showing me who I was in those words. I believe in you. Teach me more. I believe in you. Don't let me be put to shame. Teach me your ways. Teach me your precepts. And I will run in the paths of your commands. As I read those passages, I had an experience of God's love one that has formed me and pointed me in a direction in my life uh, that I am still walking this day. And I am so grateful that God showed that to me, that God revealed the nature of love and the person of Jesus Christ. I want to invite you today to consider what that means in your own life, to think of that time that experience, those experiences you've had, when everything gained clarity. Not the time when you did what you thought you should do. Not the time when you hit the mark and followed the rules. But that time when you sat alone and you had that stark moment of coming alive to something that was greater than you could have ever imagined. That time when you experienced The reality, God loves me. As we gather in worship, that's what we're celebrating. We're celebrating the reality of God's love made known and made real in this world. We've just spent a whole season of Advent and Christmas celebrating 
the person of Jesus Christ coming to this place to come into reality, to be God with us, Emmanuel. That's why we gather to celebrate. How great is the love of God? Pretty great. The story of God's faithfulness is long and filled with drama. Scripture provides a witness beginning with a loving idea of what relationship is in all of its deepest intimacy at creation. God's love was made made known overtly through the covenant, that promise, I will love you, you are my people, that God made to Abraham. It was reaffirmed to Moses, I still love you, you're not always fun to be around, but I love you, you are my people. It was shown in the Exodus, the leading out of captivity. It was shown in how longing for for freedom was held in Babylonian captivity. It was spoken of in the Psalms, the prophets, the wisdom teaching like in Ecclesiastes. And ultimately and miraculously, it was shown when it landed hard in the person of Jesus Christ. And that story that most of us sat with just a week ago. The question we have today and each time we gather in this place is, is this true? Does God's love still have meaning for me today? Does God still show love that extravagantly? Does God still work in a way that would compel us to risk what we have and what we know for what we dimly see The answer to those questions, I am thankful, come with a gift. And that gift is faith. The faith to say, I think so. I've experienced this, and it's pointing me towards this. So I will live accordingly. Faith is believing in what you do not see and hoping for what is to come with earnest pursuit. All of these examples are old. Ancient even. Do people still believe this stuff today? The short answer is yes. Yes, 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 yes. 52 times a year we gather in this very room to celebrate the reality of God's love in our own lives and in this world. And as we gather, that's a reminder both to us and this world that God's love is still powerful. That same power that brought Jesus to this place and resurrected him to the right hand of God the Father Almighty is at work. It's, in, it's at work in each of us today, proclaiming and pointing towards something that is eternal. In the process of reminding the world of this, we are given grace, and we are reminded ourselves of the truth that we hold on to. So scripture does provide witness to the reality of God's love, and we join into that. One way that we understand what this means is something that Jesus talked about quite a bit in his teaching. And it's the idea of God's coming kingdom. One way that we understand this is that it's an unfolding story of God's faithful pursuit of humanity, and that we are a part of that story. Kingdom is where we meet the story because it's where we encounter God's love. As we encounter God and God's love and experience that, 
we are becoming a story that is Bible-worthy. We are continuing that faithful witness. The Gospels speak of God's kingdom happening, coming, and being made real throughout their stories and the narratives of Jesus' life. The center of that coming kingdom is certain, and it is love. It is God's perfect and resolute love. Jesus taught regularly about the qualities of the kingdom of heaven, and he he gave examples from everyday life, like, oh, the kingdom of heaven is like this, or it's like that. All throughout the Gospels, Jesus tells many parables and teaches over and over on the coming kingdom. So what is God's kingdom? It's God's ongoing rule. It's God's presence. It's God's companionship. It's established by the life, the death, the resurrection, and the abiding of Jesus Christ on our behalf to God's glory. On this Epiphany Sunday, what epiphany or discovery do we celebrate? We celebrate Jesus Christ. With the advent of Jesus, the good news is unleashed. God's kingdom is happening all around us, and we have only to come alive to it and align with it to join with God in sharing love in this world. Following Advent and Christmas is a good time to think about what God's kingdom means today. It's easier to consider the kingdom in the context of the shepherds and the wise men because we've heard that story over and over again. Every year we hear that story. But what of God's unfolding kingdom now? We have the full story of Jesus' birth in Matthew and Luke. Bethlehem, the star, the stable. The Gospel of Mark begins in a different way. I like to think of Mark as the impatient disciple. Not because that's shown in any way other than he gets right to the point. He doesn't share that Ricky Bobby prelude of the little baby Jesus in the manger. He goes right to it. He starts off with these first words of Jesus. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. This is kingdom. Frederick Buechner describes God's kingdom like this. The kingdom of God. Time after time, Jesus tries to drum into our heads what he means by it. He heaps parable upon parable like a madman. He tries shouting it. He tries whispering it. The kingdom of God is like a treasure, like a pearl, like a seed buried in the ground. It's like a great feast that everybody is invited to. And no one attends. What he seems to be saying is that the kingdom of God is the time or a time beyond time when it will no longer be humans in their lunacy who are in charge of the world, but God in his mercy who will be in charge of the world. It's the time above all else for wild rejoicing. And Jesus says it is at hand. Our text today is found in the Gospel Witness of Matthew, chapter 13, verses 44 through 45. You can find that on your pew Bible on page 795, and I'll read it for us today.
The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which someone found and hid. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. This is the word of the Lord. Father God, I pray that today you would shine a light on the truth that you hold for us. Lord, let us hold it together. Let it transform us. Let it bring meaning to who we are as people and as your body. Lord, help us to find our kingdom treasure and our kingdom pearl and give us the faith to respond out of the sheer joy that you offer us in your love. Amen. I like how Beekner puts it. Human lunacy versus godly mercy. That's a comparison of what lords over us. We are subjective. We are subject to one of these things. Paul reminds us of that in 2 Corinthians 5 when he says the old is gone and the new is come. We will either violate the old to live into the new or we will violate the new to live into the old. The new is to find our place in God's kingdom as partners in sharing God's love in this world. In the new, we're reconciled to God and given the ministry of reconciliation in this world and all of creation to God. The old is the human nature and our desire to place ourselves at center and gain power in towards ourselves. As Paul describes reconciliation, it's a gathering of worth. In one scenario, the center is us. In the other, it's God. So why would we leave the safety of the old, the control that that brings, the old power of complete individual ownership? Why would we leave that to wager on a new partnership that's only vaguely understood? We're conditioned in our human nature and our culture to live with ourselves at the center of the world. In 2012, 2012, don't forget to write that from now on, we live in a context. We live in a context where we experience the greatest human freedoms that have ever been experienced. We can have instant access to news, to our bank accounts, to uh, communication with people around the world. Everything is right there for us. This freedom has been granted to us by power. And that power is through the place that we live. You know, this is a good freedom to have. I'm not railing against any sort of freedoms that we experience. The only thing that I bring that up for is to caution us. Because this is great freedom that comes from great power. But it is not the greatest freedom that comes from the greatest power. And so there's a cultural danger that as Christians we fall into of serving both of these powers, of living into the freedoms that are given to us. It's easy to compare the freedom that we have as 21st century Americans and to compare it to the freedom we have as kingdom children. 
The difference is, in the political sense, we've accomplished a freedom that's unprecedented in history, but our freedom still comes at the cost of someone else in this world. Our political victory may too generously give perspective to that freedom that is nowhere near the victory that Christ accomplished on the cross and in the grave and at the right hand of God our Father. Jesus' freedom is overall because the cost of it was fully borne on his shoulders alone. Overcoming systemic oppression is a facet of God's kingdom, but it's not the ultimate victory that's earned. The ultimate victory is ending the force that creates the very desire to oppress. That force is sin, and it met its match in Jesus Christ in that darkness. And on that day, the light overcame it. The light overcame it for all of eternity. The power of God's love made known to us in Jesus Christ. That power, that same one that overcame sin and eternal death, is still at work in our world. And with it comes the kingdom of heaven. The good news of the gospel spoken of in scripture is that we are given a ground-level partnership in this kingdom. That alone would make my day, to be given that opportunity, to be said, yes, come on in, be a part of this. But it's the way that it's given is what brings sheer and utter joy. We are not given a partnership by what we give up or how we act. We're first given identity. We are called beloved by God. And that means at our core, we are moved into an unfathomable place of worth. Could you use that identity today? I could. I wonder what power it would have in your life today. If someone was able to look at you, into you, through you, and say, you are beautiful. You are beloved. And I would give up anything and everything for you. You see, the story of sacrifice and great cost is about us. That treasure and that pearl is you, and it's me. Christ gave up all to be with you, and all for you to be with the Father. We are compared to the pearl of great price. In that day and age, pearls, not gold, were the most valued commodity. Pearls were worth four times what gold was worth. We are given value when we are given God's love. The kingdom of God is this, that God saw you and gave up all to hold on to you. You are loved, and now you have the option of residing in a reality where love is the driving force and the power at work. No longer human lunacy, but God's mercy. In essence, we're given a birthright, or we're adopted into a great family, and the family business is sharing love in this world. We're not shareholders, that's different. Shareholders are is someone a shareholder is someone who offers a bit to get more, hopefully in return, off the work of someone else. No, we are members of the owning family. And the best owner takes up the work of the business out of a passion and a belief that it is real 
and that they are a part of it. And then they join in the proceeds. The effect of this joy in sharing what comes out of God's kingdom is pure joy. And it's a move from the passive receipt of God's love to an active response that results in great acquisition. The transformation occurs when we live in this reality of faith, when we risk what we know for what we are coming to know. Something compels these two people in Matthew 13 to joyfully move from the old to the new. I don't know about you, but that compelling force is something I want in my life. When I read this, it makes me say, this this stuff could be true. The love of God may still have that biblical type of power. This Bible story was written so long ago. It might still matter. It might matter in my family. It might matter in my friendships. It might matter in my marriage. It might matter in my neighborhood. It might matter in this city, in our world. The transformation occurs when we live into the reality of this mattering. I have two daughters who have changed my life, Josephine and Anna. Anna is five and Josephine's one. My wife and I were married nine years before Anna was born. And then four years later after that, Josephine came to be part of our family. Our life as this family is new. Our life as a couple and our individual lives as single people is old. You know, I'm, I'm going to admit, sometimes I miss the old. <laughs> Kristen and I took a vacation to the Caribbean a number of years ago, and we had a condo given to us. And we cashed in our air miles, and we spent nearly three weeks on a beach in the Caribbean. All we did was read and eat and sleep and snorkel and swim and lay on a beach (laughs) and sleep. And as the father of a one-year-old, I had no idea. I'm not going to stand here and lie to you. That vacation haunts me. It reminds me of a happy time and a happy place where I could do whatever I wanted and experience life however I wanted to experience it. As I tell that story, the old way sounds pretty good. And it was. It was very good. The new life is this. I do not have much time to spend by myself. In fact, I went to the bathroom yesterday And had four minutes. (laughs) And at the end of those four minutes, I heard a knock on the door. And my five-year-old said, Dad, Dad, we we need to go out and and use my new scooter that she'd gotten for Christmas. And I'd made a promise. Okay, we'll do that. So as we went out to ride the scooter, I thought, what a sweet four minutes. That's about as close as I get to that old beach-filled happy place. (laughs) Along with being called out of the blissful aloneness of the bathroom, I'm on call as a playmate, as a nose wiper, taxi driver, soccer coach, avid fan of girls' athletics, 
The new life also looks like this. I spent sleepless nights holding our one-year-old as she screams in pain due to a bone infection in her head. I've lived a new kind of fear that comes with learning how to live my, with my heart outside of my body and these little girls. I've spent a total of 11 days with my wife in the past five years. So my primary resource, time, has been drastically spent in a new way. I've spent countless hours on things I never would have imagined before. I've also spent thousands of dollars on medical bills, sports fees, childcare, school expenses, something called Scrip, which you buy from your school to support it, and that third and fourth plane ticket on every vacation we go on. All new ways to spend money. The old is certainly gone, and the new has come. From an outsider's view, this transition could be seen as crazy. Why would anyone give up a life of self-fulfilling solitude, wider margin of time and money, and the freedom to do whatever came along? It almost sounds as crazy as a farmer selling everything they have to pursue a new vocation, or a salesperson selling their own possessions to jump over the side of the fence and purchase something that seemingly had less value. Just like these two biblical characters, I moved to this new life by joy. I don't always eagerly get up in the middle of the night. You can ask my wife. I'm not a saint. But I do eagerly hold my daughters, and I cherish the life that we have with joy, even though it literally costs me everything I have. I would not trade the time I have with my daughters and my family for a lifetime on a Caribbean beach. Because the life I live now is better. I've been given the ability to love in a new and deep way. And the result of my life is that it's filled with joy. I'm better at giving and receiving love than I've ever been. This new life is filled with love. And that love compels me. An immutable joy is the same thing that compels these two in Matthew 13. Now they experience this joy and they respond. Their response is the thing that moves the story from being an American dream, almost like one I've just described, to a kingdom dream. In our dream, we're inclined to receive even this joyful experience of worship, to take it home, possess it, to show up next week so we can experience a little more of that goodness. This parable makes a claim that invades us. It asks us to make a conscious decision to be awake and alert. Dale Bruner points out in his commentary on Matthew, and if any of you are reading through Matthew devotionally, I, I, would, I would suggest using this as a partner. The church book, Bruner's commentary. He says this, These two men selling their possessions, it's not a condition for finding joy. It's a condition for having it. Obedience to the claim that this joy makes in our lives is a condition of discipleship that follows Jesus, not discipleship of our culture and our day. We may follow whatever power we may like in our lives. That's a freedom that we all have. But to follow Christ 
We must choose a faithful response to the joy that God so freely gives us. Joy was freely given. These two entrepreneurs didn't sell their possessions to have joy. God freely gave them joy. They sold their possessions to respond and and align themselves to a way of life that sprung from that joy. That's a difficult thing for us to understand because we work for our dollars. There's no free lunch in life. The economy of God's kingdom is something that challenges the very DNA of who we are as humans and the cultural identity that's set up for us as Americans. They sold their things as a response to remain in joy and to live their lives according to that joy. They came to a place where they measured success by a different measure. They gained a kingdom purpose, a kingdom joy, and they offered a kingdom response. They no longer held to a worldly standard. All throughout the Gospel of Matthew, there's an invitation to join God in proclaiming the Gospel. The good news that God loves you, that this love is made known in Jesus Christ, and that this is a powerful thing more powerful than any commodity that we hold and trade. The life of discipleship is partnership with God in showing love, that same kind of love that Jesus showed to us. As he sold out all for our sake, we are invited in the same type of fulfillment. It's an upside-down economy, and it's directly countercultural to the individualistic, consumeristic culture that forms many of us. But we are given an identity. Learn and I, we are given an option. Learn an identity that's given in the loving embrace of God, father to child. And respond not as people who live in scarcity, grabbing at everything we can and keeping it for our rainy day. We are given partnership and resources beyond all we could imagine. Our job is simply to give that resource away and trust that God will replenish it. The joy and replenishment is profound and will drive you to do seemingly crazy things. But it's this kooky life that we find our deepest abundance and a glimpse of eternity in God's kingdom. Father God, I thank you for the love that you give to us. I thank you that you have looked upon us with a depth that we had no understanding of before we knew you. Lord, even today, I pray that you would reveal yourself in the power of your love. Let it rest fully, heavily on our shoulders. And God, may the lightness of your touch transform our lives. God, may we also not simply sit in the blessing of that touch, but may we stand and may we go and may we live in a way that is filled with joy, as if we believe that your love is powerful. Give us the resources to do this with an abundance that points to you. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org.
All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.